Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. I know it's been a while since I put a podcast out here. I've had a lot going on in the personal life and many things are, many moving parts, many things are happening and uh, just haven't had a chance to put together a podcast in a while. But I want to correct that today. And the way I want to correct that is I made a recent visit to the Walt Disney World Resort and I wanted to share some things that I did and saw with you. So I'm going to do this podcast in four parts. It's going to be some about Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, a little bit about the food and wine, talk about the new Skyliner, and then also I wanted to talk a little bit about construction and some of the things that were going on. So I'm going to start with construction. And I uh, found it interesting that at three of the parks, the exclusionary one would be the studios, they're doing some uh, tram upgrades. So clearly they're doing a lot with the tram and where it's going to dr- drop off and what it's going to do. I think there's more more to it than this. I think there's going to be more happening. Um, I did notice over at uh, the Magic Kingdom as well, they have the area that used to be the Speedway, and the Speedway has been totally cleared out at this point, and it's now just vacant land. They are planning transportation upgrades is what they're saying, so I imagine that there's some bigger picture they're thinking about here, and uh, you don't do the tramways and all these other things, especially when you're talking about the gondola and what other things they're doing, um, sort of in a vacuum. All of these things are going to come together in some way with some of the things that they want to do. So we'll see what they wind up doing with all that, but I found it kind of interesting that all of those, all of the tramways are under construction. And the reason the one at the studios is not under construction is because they just did a lot of construction, even with the tramway uh, at the studios. So kind of interesting. Um, the biggest amount of construction is happening, obviously, at Epcot. Uh, you have the entryway is still partially blocked off. Um, they've removed about half of the Leva Legacy blocks that were there, the, um, the giant uh, monoliths that were there. They've taken those out, and now they've got some uh, walls up for the other side where they're removing some of those. You've also got the fountain that's right behind Spaceship Earth. That's totally walled off, and they're taking it out. You can actually see it from the monorail. You can see how they're removing a large section of, uh, of the concrete that's around it, and they will be removing the fountain as well. And then, of course, the uh, side that was uh, Communicore slash Interventions on the uh, west side of the, of the property there, that's all under construction as well. And it's really interesting to kind of look at how they're changing the entirety of what uh, Epcot is, at least in the future world part. As you look around there, you realize there's a lot of things happening and there's many, many changes that are coming. Um, so there's a lot of different construction walls and things happening and it's continually evolving. Temporarily, the... Um, Starbucks is closed in Epcot. I guess they have a temporary location they set up, though I didn't see it. But they have closed off a lot of the uh, area that was there, just as they're continuing to work on uh, all of this. And it's just amazing how much work they're doing. Now, I did notice as I was coming around on the monorail, it looks like behind the Communicore slash Interventions West, it looks like they're putting new footers out behind. So my 
presumption is based on what they were the work they were doing that they're not actually going to tear down the entirety of the buildings that they have but rather they're going to expand the buildings out change the facade on them completely and reuse some of that space so they will uh, meet up with whatever it is they have in mind specifically for uh, the future of future world i just found it really uh interesting you know how much just everything that was going on there was just fascinating to me just the the scale of all the uh, construction and uh, it's funny because you, if you really look around, you can see some construction workers here and there doing some of their work. And then occasionally you'll see, see a uh, Disney cast member who's uh, wearing some construction gear. They might be like the foreman or the, the Disney Imagineer consultant type person who would be standing there and doing some work. And then they just step on stage again because they're wearing their name tag and they just, you know, take off the hard hat and walk around. It was kind of funny um, just when you think about it. But the scale of uh, construction is nothing short of amazing. So anyway, that, uh, that was my thought on construction. There's um, the other three parks, really not as much construction going on, uh, a little bit here and there at different places, mainly maintenance type work it looks like, but that's the, that's the big deal that's happening. So I'm going to turn over and talk about food and wine and stay in Epcot for a few minutes. So I always enjoy the food and wine festival. It's one of the things that I find kind of fun to do. It's just a, a good time to go there and uh, take a look around kind of experience it. Now, I'm not much of a drinker, so, you know, drinking is not my thing, but I know that people really do enjoy that. And I, you know, I, I'll talk to people who are enjoying it and ask them what they think about different things. And it's kind of fun to, to kind of get into it. And often when I'm there, I will stand there and just talk to people and just start up conver random conversations about whatever, uh, just because it's fun to have that interaction and find out what people like and what is it that draws them to the park and what is it that they like and so on and so on and so on. I find it kind of fun. So when I go into food and wine, um, typically I'm there for either one or two days. And in either case, if I'm there for one day, I'll probably eat four or five of the dishes. If I'm there for two days, I'll probably eat six dishes or so, and then fill in with some other things along the way. I'll, you know, I might go to dinner or do something else. I mean, there's only so much food you can eat and the dishes, the portions aren't huge, but when you eat several of them, they fill you up pretty quickly. And depending on what time of day you actually get there, um, you know, I try to do it kind of between lunch and dinner, that sort of thing. So I might have a little breakfast and then just go between lunch and dinner and eat a bunch of dishes, as many as I can basically have or stand, um, and then I'll move on from there. Now, it's interesting. I was talking to a guy. He, was, he had come over to Epcot at about 9.30 or 10, and he was hoping to get some food and wine. And they said, sorry, sir, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the World Showcase doesn't open until 11. And he's like, well, why don't they open it up and sell, you know, like food before 11? That doesn't make sense to me. I can understand not selling the alcohol, but why don't you open it up and sell food? Because, you know, people want to try the different dishes and I'm already here. I'd love to try it. And I thought that was an interesting take. I was like, I hadn't really thought about it before. It is kind of odd that Future World opens at 11. I always thought that was a little strange when the rest of the park opens at nine. And actually on one of the days they had some early opening hours and they actually opened at eight. So it was kind of funny that they, you know, for, you know, a couple of hours, for like three hours, you can only go into the future world parts. So you can do some of those things. And there are some things in World Sh Showcase that are open, like, for example, the, uh, the Maelstrom, I'm sorry, <laughs> the Frozen Ever After ride is open. Um, so you can go and do that. But other than that, there's uh, not a lot to do. You can't really do much in future world and uh, World Showcase. You can do a lot in future world. Anyway, so that was uh, that. Was that. Um, as far as the, my criteria for selecting what I want to try, the food that I want to eat. So my criteria is usually I want to try something that's a little unusual, that I can't really get at home, or that I can't make at home. There are a number of dishes that I make that are a little unusual at home. So if I, have, if I can make them at home or have made them at home, I probably won't get it at the food and wine. 
Also, I try to get things that are a little bit more uh, interesting, perhaps a little more exotic, um, a little different. If I can find a similar dish at home, I probably won't have it. Um, you know, if I can go to a restaurant nearby and I can get something similar, I probably won't try it. And also, um, I don't, I'm one of those people, I think, you know, bacon, I just don't like bacon. Um, the smell of it's okay. And, you know, once in a while, a little bit here and there, whatever, but overall I'm not a fan. So when, um, you know, when all these different things come with bacon, I'm like, eh, that kind of takes me out of it. Cause I don't really like the way it flavors food. I mean, it's very salty and whatever, but it, and not saying it's not nice, but it's just not my favorite thing to have. So that eliminates some dishes as well. So, and, uh, I have, I still have my issue. I can't eat beef. So beef is out. So that eliminates a lot of dishes there. So, I try to find things that are a little more interesting and a little different. So this year, I uh, actually went for six dishes plus a drink. And uh, let me try and tell you what those dishes were. Over in Australia, they had the lamb chop. And that was really good. It had like a, I think it was a sweet potato puree or a, maybe it was a squash puree underneath it. Um, and it had some like um, a little light sauce. And I think it was like a, you know, like a, a balsamic type sauce. And it had some different uh, vegetables with it. And that was really good. I enjoyed that thoroughly. Um, yeah, that was just a nice dish. Uh, over at the refreshment port, I saw something interesting. It was a poutine. Uh, poutine is a tradition, more traditional Canadian dish that usually has um, cheese curds, some kind of gravy, and French fries. Yeah, I know. Sounds kind of weird, right? If you're not from Canada or you've never been there, you kind of go, what is that? Um, but they actually did one that was a variation on it. It was uh, French fries and uh, duck confit and then a, a sauce on top of it. And I found that to be just delightful. And it was really good, very filling. It was a large portion. It was a little more expensive than the other dishes. Um, but I found it to be a large portion and it filled me up and I really didn't need to eat much more after that. Uh, it was really, really, really good. I was surprised at just how good it was. I didn't expect that much from it, but it really was pretty good. Um, over in China, I tried the bao bun. I like a bao bun. Um, this one was not as good. It was a little more of a miss. Um, it was a chicken and shrimp bao bun um, with, uh, with some sauce on it. And uh, the bun itself was terrific, but the, um, the chicken and shrimp inside, they left a little to be desired. They weren't as good as uh, what they've had in the past. They've had chicken in the past, and I think they've had duck in the past. Um, but this year, it just wasn't as good. Now, I did get the mango boba, mango boba tea. Um, that's something that I actually really like. I like boba a lot. It's the uh, little tapioca pearls that uh, are in the bottom of the tea, and you kind of suck them through the straw, and you, you get this texture element to go along with your tea. And I really like that, so I went ahead and got it. Uh, that is something that I can get here and do get occasionally uh, at home, but um, decided it was worthwhile getting it. Over at, um, I believe it was Earth Eats, they had um, some impossible meat that they were using. And so they had a slider they did, but they also did this um, sort of cottage pie. And it was really pretty good. It had some uh, nice vegetables in it, a um, little bit uh, maybe, uh, I think it was maybe a little tomato base that was in it, I think. But it was really nice. It was, an, it was a nice blend of different flavors and textures. And it uh, had a meaty flavor to it, sort of, if you will. Um, it's sort of this uh, texture component that makes it, you know, sort of like this, this shepherd's pie kind of thing where it has all the right components in it. It was really pretty tasty. Great vegetarian dish. Um, really like that one a lot. Um, right next to it at Coastal Eats, I got the sea bass, which had a uh, tomatillo sauce and some slaw, and it was served on top of a... Um, uh, a tortilla. Um, so it was really, it was really pretty good. Actually, it wasn't a tortilla. It was a, a fried tortilla. What's that? What's the word for that? I can't think of it now. I'll think of it in a minute. 
But anyway, it was the uh, it was really pretty good. Uh, the bass was very nicely flavored, um, well cooked, well seasoned. I thought that was a really good dish. And then finally, the last one I got, and this was an unusual one, I got the bratwurst from uh, Germany, and it came on a pretzel roll, and I, th I thought that was really pretty tasty. Now, bratwurst you can get those a lot of different places. I don't eat much bratwurst. I don't eat anything like that. It was, but it was really nice. It came with a nice um, German mustard, German style mustard that I thought was really pretty good. Complemented it very well. And it kind of, in a way, reminded me of actually being in Germany at some point in my life. Um, so that was kind of fun. It was a fun little adventure to try these, uh, these different dishes and walk around and talk to people and see what they liked and ask people what they, what they thought. And um, these were some of my favorites. I think the duck confit with the, uh, and the poutine was really my favorite overall. It was just really, really good. I thought that was a very tasty dish, um, and I would highly recommend it. Um, you know, a little more pricey, but certainly... Uh, well worth it. Next up on my list, I wanted to talk about uh, the Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, Batu. So I went into it with a kind of an open mind. Um, my problem starting off was simply that uh, Disney had this idea for creating Star Wars themed lands in different parks. And originally the concept was to have different themed lands in each of the different parks and to take you to a different world. And then eventually they paired that back and they said, we're going to create the exact same thing in both Disneyland and Disney World. And it's going to be a, a planet you've never heard of. In fact, I'm a bit of a Star Wars geek. I don't remember seeing Batu ever appear anywhere in any of the George Lucas uh, universe that he created. It may have been there, but I don't remember it. And I'm like, okay, so you created a new universe, you know, something that was different. And it kind of troubled me that it was the same in both parks. But, you know, if they do it right, that's okay. And sort of the standard these days is if you create a land, you make it an immersive and themed land, much like the Harry Potter land, much like Pandora, the world of Avatar, and now Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And you put two attractions in there, essentially. And so one is open. It's the Smuggler's Run. And the other one will be open later. It's the Rise of the Resistance. Now, what I can say is the thematics, the way it looks, the way it feels, the sounds, sort of the whole thing that's going on there, it's terrific. It's really awesome. If you didn't know it was Star Wars, you might not know it was Star Wars. There's nothing about it that screams Star Wars except for seeing the, um, the X-Wing fighter that's off on display and then the Millennium Falcon. Other than that, you might not realize that this is a Star Wars universe. It's kind of a weird thing to say, but it doesn't feel like Star Wars per se, though it certainly has the feeling, you know, the right sort of trappings to make you believe it's Star Wars. They did a great job theming it up. There's a uh, central marketplace that you walk through that's uh, really well thought out. I mean, it's just, it's so interesting and intricate and it's, it's really cool when you walk through it. And then uh, you get to the end and you see the, the roaster there where they have the different foods that the uh, droid is making with the pod racing uh, engine. All fine, you know, that's all good. But it's, it's the thematics of it that make it kind of interesting and make it kind of compelling. Now there's a, you know, there's sort of a, sort of this overriding thing that it's like, if you don't see anything Star Wars, how do you know it's Star Wars? There's nothing about it that screams Star Wars to me. And the other problem I had as I'm walking through is that it's one giant merchandise shop. Everywhere you walk along, it's all stuff for sale. There's not like things to just do and experience and just kind of walk into. I mean, yes, you can wander into different places and look around a little bit, but it doesn't feel like it has that draw where you're just able to walk in and look at something it's more like it's a draw to walk in and spend a little money. And I have to say that seeing the lightsabers, uh, the, the whole experience of making your own lightsaber and everything, sounds really cool, 
but I'm not willing to spend $200 for the experience in addition to my theme park ticket to take home a souvenir that I will probably never use again. And that's a personal thing with me. I mean, it sounds really cool, but I can't experience it unless I spend the $200. So it's lost on me. And then also the droid factory. I walked in it. The, star, the lightsaber you can't actually see unless you, unless you pay the money. You may, there's a, it's behind a door. You, can't even, you don't even know where it is unless you know. Um, the droid factory, on the other hand, you can walk in and stand on the outside of where the droids are coming through. And you can uh, experience it to a point where you're watching people make their droids. Okay, it's kind of cool to watch other people make their droids. You can't go in. You can't touch it. You can't feel it. You can't do anything unless you spend the 100 bucks to buy a droid. Again... I'm not going to go in and buy a droid that I'm going to take home and probably play with once for a hundred bucks in addition to whatever else I've spent. I just don't see that. So I'm watching it and it looks really cool. Don't get me wrong. And it's, it's kind of a neat idea. It just feels like it's got a higher price point than I'm willing to put on something uh, to be able to get there and enjoy myself. So, you know, kind of that was lost on me. So everything felt like it was a giant commercialization gift shop kind of thing going on there. So you're asking me, what about the Millennium Falcon? Now, it's cool that they have the Falcon there, and you can kind of walk around the outside of it. It's sort of fenced off, so you can't get that close. But it's still pretty cool that you can walk around the outside and look at it. And the detail on it is stunning. Uh, they did a really nice job of making it, you know, a movie prop type of thing. So it's really cool the way they've got it up there, and it's, it's neat. And at one point, when I was there, Chewbacca came out, and he walked over by it. And then Ray came over, and there was some other pilot, and they were chatting among themselves and hiding from some uh, First Order troopers that were there. Cute, clever, all that. Um, and then he'd stop and, you know, take a couple of pictures with people and whatever. But, you know, that was about the extent of it. You know, it's sort of supposed to be immersive, and yet he's pulled away and he's by the Millennium Falcon, and we're sort of outside the fence. And it's just sort of weird the way the dynamic works there. Now, as for the attraction itself, I watched a lot of videos about the attraction. I'm a person who suffers from some um, vertigo, basically, some inner ear imbalance, and I get very disoriented, especially in uh, simulator rides. So when I go in a simulator ride, I have some hard times because I can't um, bring together and rationalize what I'm seeing and what I'm feeling. They don't match for me. For some people, it's fine. You don't even notice, but I notice every single time. So I can't really ride simulators. It just, it's very disorienting. So the um, Millennium Falcon ride is essentially a simulator. You go in, you sit down and it's moving the whole time and you're seeing a screen. And I've watched a lot of videos of it and I debated long and hard whether I was going to be able to ride it or not. And I finally decided that I wasn't going to be able to ride it. It wasn't going to work for me. Um, so in effect, I miss out on that, right? The one attraction they have open, I can't do. So I'm kind of, you know, a little, a little put off by that, that it's kind of sad that I can't do it. I watched some people riding it and not touching the controls, and they said it was actually worse than if you do touch the controls. It's like, huh, interesting. Okay. So you have to consider that as a... Uh, as something that I can't do. So it's, you know, kind of lost on me. Now, I did think about going through and taking, walking through the attraction and getting in the queue and walk, making my way in and then uh, taking the chicken exit out. I had two problems with that. The first is that the, um, the queue was long. It was like 55 minutes. Even for the single rider, it was over 30. Uh, so that, uh, that was a little concerning. The other part is that you, if you're going to take the chicken exit, you actually do it before, just after you um, see, what's his name, Andar, um, up on the stage and talking to you about what you're going to do. And before you actually get into like where they have the, uh, it looks like the Millennium Falcon with the uh, chess table. So you don't get to see that. If you take the chicken exit, you miss out on that. Now, I've heard people say that they can ask the cast member and sometimes they'll take you through there, you know, as you're going out. But, you know, if I have to ask for it, what's the point? I just want to be able to see it. 
And, you know, that coupled with the 30 minute wait just didn't make sense to me. I was like, nope, not going to do that. So I, um, so I skipped it and I'm kind of sad about that. I would have liked to have seen the chess room. I would have liked to have experienced it, but I couldn't. So again, something else a little bit lost on me because it just, I didn't have the ability to take advantage of it. And I'm kind of sad about that in a way. Uh, you know, it just feels like, you know, there's, there's not enough there for me personally. Um, now I know the rise of the resistance, that looks like a very cool ride, but there's a spot in it where you're in a car and then all of a sudden they do some, some, uh, thing where you're going to drop off and fall down in the car. Again, large motions like that, I can't do. So I'm going to miss that one too. And I'll watch the videos on it. I'll make sure before I, you know, ultimately say that I can't do it, but I will probably miss out on that one too. And that's kind of sad that I'll miss them both. Um, so I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of thinking about it and I'm going, you know, I'd really like to be able to, to say I loved it, but I can't because there wasn't anything for me to do. Now I did try blue milk. Blue milk was kind of awesome. It was really pretty tasty. It, uh, you know, certainly had the right texture and feel to it. You know, when you see it in the movie, when Luke is drinking the blue milk, it's a thicker thing. It's more like a milkshake than it is a milk. And this was kind of like that. It had that sort of feel to it. So it was, it was okay. A little pricey, but certainly okay. Um, just kind of need to be able to, uh, to try that and have that first experience. Hey, it's blue milk. That's kind of cool. Uh, so overall, I thought it was a terrifically themed place. Um, I think it's really nice. Um, well thought out, well designed. Weird that it's not exactly Star Wars, though it is. Weird that it has nothing to do with the first six episodes. It only has to do with seven, eight, and nine. Um, and there's really no connection to anything before that at all. So it's kind of a strange mix that go, non-mix that goes on there. It kind of feels like there's something missing because there's nothing attaching you or grabbing you about the first six episodes. Um, and the thing that I was thinking was when they used to do the um, Star Wars weekends, they were fantastic. They were so well thought out and there was such a connection to all the Star Wars universe. You had uh, stormtroopers, clone troopers, and I, I, I guess they closed it before... They had the um, the, Imper uh, the um, episode seven where you have the uh, first order, so didn't really see those during Star Wars weekend. I guess the last year there was a little bit of it, but they were just doing their own thing. Um, but you had this connection to all these different things, and I would say, I would argue that this sort of haphazard one-off thing that they were doing that was Star Wars weekend was ten times better than what they have for the Star Wars themed land. Sacrilege, probably for most people, but that's the way I saw it. The other thing that the one thing that bothers me, and I've talked about this a couple of times, is the way the land is oriented. So I was standing over by uh, the um, Star Tours ride, and they did a nice job. They have the Ad Ad up there, and they have the uh, the Ewok Village, and they're more like movie sets, right? So part part of them are not complete, most of them are complete, but you know from any angle you're standing at, it looks complete, and. You're standing there and it feels immersive. You feel like you're involved in the Star Wars land. And you have Tatooine Traders that's, you know, kind of well-themed as far as that goes. And as you walk away from there, you step away from there, you're standing back in front of the sci-fi dine-in theater, which is kind of weird. Then you turn and you see part of what's left of New York Street and you see the Muppet area over to the left. And then in front of you is the gate, the archway that goes into Star Wars land. It's kind of weird thematically that they separated Star Tours from the rest of Star Tours land, Star Wars land. It just feels kind of strange the way they did that. It doesn't really make sense to me, but you know, I, I'm kind of like, yeah, okay, that's what they did. You know, it's, it is what it is. And on the other end, when you come out, you walk right from the uh, end of Star Wars land and you're standing right by the, um, uh, the alien saucers in the uh, Toy Story land. 
That one's kind of an even stranger mix, but I can understand that one because there's nothing else near it that's Star Wars related. It's just that the Star Tours is Star Wars related. And it's almost like they're saying they're not really related, right? Which I guess they're not. If there's no connection to the original six movies, there's no connection. Now, one thing I wanted to point out, and I meant to mention this earlier, was on Smuggler's Run. Um, there is one very cool piece of technology that's there. Um, Disney has a problem with throughput and capacity on a lot of attractions. So what they did was they actually came up with this patented idea, patented idea that they had where they actually have, instead of being one cockpit that you enter, you have seven cockpits that are on a turntable. So each time the door closes to put people inside the cockpit, the six people that are going to ride, the, the uh, turntable rotates one over and the door reopens and it's empty again. So basically, every, every minute or two, you're, re, you're putting six more people on the attraction. Oop. You just keep putting more people on, more people on. And the, the people that are riding in it, they continue to rotate through, but they don't know it because they're watching the simulator screen and the, uh, the attraction is moving and bumping and doing whatever it's doing. And then it continues to rotate around until it's finished. Then the door is open and you exit. But the actual attraction itself is moving the whole time. So that way they can continue to load and unload people on a regular basis. And they, don't, they have less load time that way. And it allows them to have more, more throughput. So it's more of a people eater, as they say, uh, because of the number of people that can go through the attraction in uh, a set period of time. Now, I think, if I'm not mistaken, there are actually two turntables. So there's a left and a right, basically. So instead of being, you know, seven times the six people, 42 people, it's actually 84 people they're putting through in one cycle. So every 15 minutes or so, they've got another, you know, 84 people they're putting through. So it's a pretty good high capacity ride, maybe a little less than 15 minutes, but you get the idea. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty good ride in that sense where they're actually taking people through pretty quickly. And the patent on it is pretty cool because Disney really thought it through. And again, they think through these things, and I think that's terrific. I'm just, it's sort of the overall architecture that I'm concerned about and why it's not really Star Wars. But that's my, that's my take on it. So I will definitely visit again, no question. Um, did I love it? No. Did I hate it? Absolutely not. Um, I'm somewhere in the middle. Thematically, terrific. Well thought out. Just missing a lot of elements that, that captured me. And that's just my take on it. Finally, I wanted to talk about Disney's Skyliner. That's the new gondola system that they put in. And, you know, I was skeptical. I said, oh, they're going to put in a gondola system. Yay. How exciting. Wow. Okay. Where's the monorail? And I was like, all right, I'm going to ride it. I'm just going to give it a shot. And I went first from uh, the Hollywood studios. I wanted to go to Epcot. And the way it works is they have a central hub that's at the Caribbean Beach Resort. So at the Caribbean Beach Resort, it's sort of like this big hub of activity where they move people around to different places. And they have three lines that leave from there. The first line goes over to Hollywood Studios, so that's sort of the, you know, the direct west line. Then you have one that goes uh, down to the Art of Animation slash, slash Pop Century Resort, so that's basically due south of there. And then you have the Epcot line, which is really not really north of there, but the way they do it, they take you out on the north side, then you turn, and you actually uh, go through a big bend, and you head to Epcot. And uh, that's the longest of the lines. And it goes through the, the new under-construction Mediterranean resort along the way. So it's actually kind of clever the way they do this. They have the three lines that all go around. So they each go in a loop independently of each other. And you go to the Caribbean beach to, uh, to actually switch if you're going to go from one place to another. So to get from, down, from the Hollywood studios over to Epcot, I had to go to the Caribbean beach, get off, and then get back on to go to Epcot. Now, the trip to... Um, from the Caribbean beach to the studios was about three or four minutes. The trip from the, uh, 
Caribbean Beach down to the Art of Animation was about, I would say about four minutes, but the trip from the Caribbean Beach over to Epcot is about 12 minutes. So it's a little bit of a long ride, but consider that it's always moving. It's always continually moving. So there's never any downtime. You might have a short wait as they're loading up the cars, uh, the actual gondola vehicles, but it's really pretty, uh, pretty slick and you're moving much faster than you would say if you're waiting for a bus. Cause if I did that same trip, it takes me, you know, basically four minutes to go from, uh, the Hollywood studios to the Caribbean beach and then 12 minutes to get to Epcot. And there's probably, you know, maybe less than five minutes of wait time. So in less than 20 minutes, I've made the entire trip where if I'm taking a bus, the bus ride itself is probably 20 minutes, give or take, maybe a little more depending on, you know, traffic and other things. Plus the wait time, the buses are always, you know, you're always waiting 15 minutes for a bus. So if you just happen to miss it, you might wait 10 minutes, 15 minutes, something like that before the next bus comes. So it does take a while to get through the entirety of what you're doing. You know, it could take, you know, half an hour to get there instead of 20 minutes. It could take 40 minutes to get there instead of 20 minutes. The thing they always tell you is please allow for an hour to get from one point to another anywhere you are on the Walt Disney World Resort property. That's sort of the rule of thumb. In this case, it's a much more efficient, much faster system because it's always moving. And from Disney's perspective, it saves on the buses, so you don't have to have as many buses running necessarily. And also, and this is probably a financial consideration that they've had, you know, the buses are expensive to maintain, and all of the bus drivers are paid at a, at a bus driver wage, um, so that, you know, it's a higher wage, and I believe they're all unionized, if I'm not mistaken. So in using the gondola system and reducing the number of bus drivers and the number of buses, you're actually helping your bottom line and actually helping the environment in some way. These, um, these gondolas are very environmentally friendly in a lot of ways. And speaking of which, just an aside, the other day I was in Fort Lauderdale and I happened to see a fully electric bus. It was a full-size bus, but it was fully electric. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. That's the future right there. You know, these diesel buses have a limited shelf life uh, at this point. Electric buses are probably going to become more prominent. That would be my guess anyway, that you'll see more of them coming up and uh, you'll start to see them around. And probably at some point, Disney will invest in them as well as they leave the uh, fleet service from uh, different places or become more affordable for Disney. Typically, they buy their buses from, um, uh, from other municipalities that have decommissioned these buses. You know, they have a, they have a, a lifespan of, you know, five to ten years whatever it is, I don't know what the number is. And uh, they'll decommission them and then Disney will buy them secondhand and then do whatever they need to to keep them running and whatever and you know they'll keep them going. But if the price point on an electric bus goes down to a point where Disney can afford to buy them new, they probably will. Or if, they, um, if municipalities start using them and then start decommissioning them at some point, Disney might buy those as well. So I expect you'll see more electric buses coming in the future. Anyway, that's just my aside on that. As far as the gondola itself, very cool. Um, you know, very neat the way they've designed it. So the gondola system is basically just a cable that goes around in a big loop. And there's a motor that's pulling that cable. And that's all it is. And these, these gondolas grab onto it. And then they go to different destinations. And then, they, you know, they, they'll, um, they can speed up and slow down slightly by uh, loosening their grip on the cable, tightening the grip on the cable, um, doing different things that, uh, that keep it rolling. So it's actually a very simple yet elegant design that they have. Um, and it's true of, you know, any gondola system that way. Um, they did a nice job with setting them up there. You know, they look pretty the way they have them. They have the wraps on them. Um, so they have different characters and different colors and different things. And they're, you know, they're kind of nice that way. Um, the way they're set up, they actually have, there's, there's a bench on either side. It's a wooden bench on either side, like a park bench. And they can seat up to 10 people. It's five on each side. And uh, underneath the bench, there's a, vent, a ventilation space under there. 
Um, so it's almost all the way open underneath the bench kind of behind you. So, and there's like a little fence, fancy type thing, a little chicken wire in front of it kind of thing to keep anybody from, you know, getting caught in it or whatever, but it's kind of open underneath. And then at the top, there's these, um, uh, jealousy type windows, uh, that are open and have a little screen behind them. So as soon as, as soon as you get in, they're kind of cool, but as soon as you start moving, there's air flowing through them because there's plenty of air going from the top to the bottom and the bottom to the top and circulating. It's a little physics thing, a little uh, thermodynamics thing that's happening there that keeps the air circulating. So it's actually fairly cool. I was there on a fairly hot day and it was very comfortable inside them. Didn't feel like it was uncomfortable at all. Now we did stop at one point and it was a little bit warmer, but I wouldn't say it got really hot because there was still a circulation that was going on even though the, uh, the gondola had stopped at some point. Thankfully it wasn't for two hours, but it did stop for a short time. It was maybe five minutes or so. But it was really pretty neat the way it works. Um, very clever. Uh, there's not much in the way of announcements that happen on it. There's a little bit here and there. They do have a speaker in it that uh, provides a small announcement and tells you something that's, that's going on. Tells you you're coming to your destination, get ready to stop, get off, blah, blah, blah. But it's pretty cool. Um, the, uh, so it's uh, generating a little bit of electricity based on a little roller up at the top that's kind of rubbing against uh, the wire as it's going, the cable as it's going. So it's actually generating a little bit of electricity. So it's self-contained as it's moving. And that actually allows it to do that and actually have lights in it. So it's actually pretty clever. Um, nicely designed. I really like it. You can't ride round trip. You have to get off and get back on if you want to go around again. Um, they do have accommodations for people uh, with disabilities. What they actually do is they have some cars that are specially designed with fewer seats and some straps to hold the uh, hold wheelchairs and whatever in there. And what they'll do is they'll actually take one off the line. Uh, the guy was telling me they come around every 15 minutes or so. I'm sorry, every 15 cars or so. There's another one that's, uh, that's uh, designed for uh, uh, easy entry. And they will actually pull it off the line, bring it over to the side, and then it's stopped, not moving, and they can uh, put someone on there. So it makes it easy to put a wheelchair on or some people who need a little extra assistance to be able to get on. And then they can just get on it and they're ready to go. Um, then they just push it back on the line and it goes wherever it's going. And then it, uh, they, on the other end, they do the same thing. So they just keep a lookout for it and they'll, they're pulling the people off as they come through. It's very clever. Very, very cool the way they do it. So um, kind of interesting. The rest of them, if you're just a, you know, a person who's just going to ride it, the cars are always moving. They're moving kind of slowly when they come in the station, but they are always moving. The ground is not moving. Unlike, say, the Haunted Mansion where the, your car and your ride vehicle and, the, um, and uh, the, uh, the conveyor belt underneath you are moving at the same speed, uh, this is not the case here. There is no moving walkway or anything on the, on the outside. You walk up on hard ground and then you step into a moving vehicle. And when you step out, you're, moving, you're stepping off a moving vehicle onto um, non-moving ground. So they do kind of warn you as you come out, be careful, you know, you watch your step because it is a little, it's a minorly disorienting because you're not moving anymore, but it's not a big deal. Um, you just step right off and you, and then you go on your way. It's actually really cool. The automatic doors, you know, open and close and whatever. And it's just, uh, it's just, I thought it was very clever. So I give them an A plus, you know, check plus on this because it was really a well-designed system. I think it's, uh, it, it's quick, it's efficient. And I actually kind of like it. It's kind of a fun way to get around different places. It's not the monorail, but it is pretty cool and it is worth taking. And I really did enjoy sort of the nature of it. Um, and I took it a couple of times just because I wanted to make sure I kind of got the whole feeling for it, you know, in every direction and whatever. 
Now, the one from um, the one from the Caribbean Beach Epcot, as I said, it stops in the Mediterranean Resort that's under construction. So basically, uh, if you want to be able to get to the Mediterranean Resort, you would take that one to get there, and you would just get off kind of midway. Um, you know, that's just another way to get somewhere. Now, I have heard discussions about the possibility of expanding the gondola system to other places. The one thing that was, I wanted to get at one point to the Animal Kingdom. And there's no easy way to get to the Animal Kingdom. So I wound up coming back through Epcot and going out and waiting for a bus and going to the Animal Kingdom. And that was fine. But there's no easy way to get there. Would have been nice if there was some, maybe a gondola or something to get me there. So I can see in the future they're going to be looking at expanding this. Um, quite clearly, if it's a success, and it seems to be so far, um, they'll, they'll expand it and they'll have you go more places. So... I'm curious to see what Disney's master transportation plan looks like. Buses are not the right answer. They are temporarily, but they're not the right long-term answer. And I want to see what Disney does to get the better long-term answer and start to move us in a different direction and, you know, have things uh, start thinking about things a little differently. But it was cool. And uh, I, you know, I look forward to going again and riding the gondolas just because they were really comfortable and, you know, very pleasant. It's kind of fun in a way. It's almost like a ride in a way. Um, you know, they used to have the Skyway inside the Magic Kingdom, and it was one of my favorite attractions just because you went up and you went across and it was fun. Same thing. You know, this is the same concept here, only it's a means to get from point A to point B. So, you know, a little different in that sense, but uh, very similar. So I think I've covered, let's see, I got, uh, I got my, um, the Skyway, I got food and wine, I got uh, construction and uh, Galaxy's Edge. Yeah, I think I covered everything I wanted to cover on this particular uh, podcast. So I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed these discussions about things that are going on and things that are happening. Um, I really do enjoy putting together these podcasts. I just wish I had a little more time right now to do some of them uh, because they really are kind of fun. Um, I do like, and obviously, I like to talk. So if you, uh, if you have any questions about anything that I talked about, just feel free to you know send me an email, um, tweet me. Go ahead and uh, use the Anchor um, audio to leave me some feedback if you like. Whatever you like. I'm happy to, uh, happy to hear it. And that is my podcast for this week, and I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there... Please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gilles. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company.